Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to Amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Okay, everybody, this is it. If you've been waiting for the last minute, the very last moment to sign up for the Coffee Shop Writers Group, you have reached it. This is the last minute. As of the release date of episode 85, you have about... Let's see, it's midnight on Thursday. You have 48 hours until the doors close for this round. So you can check it out at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop. Join 11 other writers to plunge forward for the next six months. Follow the journey of the major arcana of tarot and get that draft down on paper. Have you been putting off your book? Maybe you have. Have you been listening to this show, hoping one day it'll be time to write your book? It is time. It is time right now. So sign up and we'll see you in the group. We start Monday, January 15th. This is episode 85. My guest this week is Cecil Castellucci, who's the author of books and graphic novels for young adults, including Boyproof, The Plain Janes, The Year of the Beasts, Tin Star, and The Eisner Nominated Odd Duck. In 2015, she co-authored Moving Target, a Princess Leia adventure. She's currently writing Shade the Changing Girl, an ongoing comic on Gerard Way's young animal imprint at DC Comics. Her latest book, Don't Cosplay With My Heart, came out January 2nd, 2018. Her short stories and short comics have been published in Strange Horizons, Tor.com, Womanthology, Star Trek Waypoint, and Vertigo SFX Slam. She is the Children's Correspondence Coordinator for The Rumpus, a two-time McDowell Fellow and the founding YA editor at the LA Review of Books. She lives in LA. I am so happy to have Cecil on. She is so much fun. And one of the few episodes, actually the only episode, as you'll hear, that's ever been recorded in my home right in front of my face. So she came over and we recorded together. I know you're going to really enjoy this conversation. We dive into YA, her latest book, writing for young people, and lots of other issues that are kind of prickling people lately about um, censorship, writing sensitively, and considering all audiences when you write your work. So this is a favorite episode because I think the topics are so important. And even though it's just the beginning of the conversation, I'm really glad we're starting it. So here we go with Cecil Castellucci. Hey, Cecil, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So this is another fun one. This is the very first time for those of you listening. This may make absolutely no difference to you at all listening to the show, but to us, this is the first time I have recorded in person with someone in my office, in my home. So <laughs> if you notice, um, I don't know, some sort of different vibe, maybe maybe we're creating podcast history, at least for this show. <laughs> 
yeah, you know, we, we can jam off each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I'm like, oh, somebody's in my office. Oh, you know, we do live in the same city and not that far away. So yeah, it seems... not, I, literally, I'm just like down the road. Amazing. So you have a book coming out. You've written many books, but a new one, which is one of my favorite titles of recent history, Don't Cosplay With My Heart, <laughs> which is super cute and everybody should read it. I read it literally in one sitting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, I, you know, my first novel that I wrote was called Boyproof, and it was about a girl who dressed up as a, um, her favorite character and went to school basically in cosplay every day. And it was like about nerds. And that was like my first book. And it was one of the first YA books that had sort of a nerd front and center as a character rather than a sidekick. And that was like 15 years ago. And so it was really nice to kind of revisit that, like at this moment in time where like nerds are mainstream. And, um, you know, it's just a completely, you know, completely different vibe. So it was kind of fun to revisit um, a nerdy girl being sort of front and center in a book. I think that's another interesting, I have so many things I want to say about that, especially about like nerds shifting from the side to the center, which I think is a huge thing as somebody who grew up when nerds were definitely not cool and definitely not cool. shoved off to the side. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing was this kind of proof that people were looking for. Some of the characters who are kind of jerks, there are some jerks in the book, who are constantly kind of quizzing her about whether or not she's, quote, a real nerd, unquote. And I think that that's something that hasn't changed about adolescent culture, even if you see different groups that are now the cool group. So I loved that you put... It felt very believable to me as, I mean, granted, I'm fairly far away from being an adolescent now, but as someone who has been one and and had sometimes a tough time with it, to really keep that emotional experience of what it's like to be uncertain and not sure who you are. Yeah, well, I mean, I think actually it's not even just a a thing with like um, adolescence. I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, gentlemen in the nerd community actually do quiz girls on like, you know, whether or not they're a real a real geek or a fake geek girl. I mean, that's actually a thing, you know? I mean, I've certainly had it happen where, you know, people have sort of like tested me or they've asked me if I'm like picking something up for my boyfriend or if I'm into something because my boyfriend likes it. And it's like, it's like at this, it's it's so shocking to me because it's like at this point when you go to a Comic-Con and it's 50% women, 50% men, it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like at this point, it's like, it's like th- this, this idea that nerds, this false idea that nerds are these sort of sad gentlemen who sit in the basement of their parents' house playing video games is just completely false. It's It was false back then and it's false now, you know? And it's more annoying when um, when gentlemen do that. You know, there's big problems. Like when you look at Gamergate or like a lot of these, you know, things or a lot of the uh, boys who are sadly upset about characters being gender swapped or, you know, anything like that. Um, there's this, you know, I, there's this feeling that they have, I think, where their spaces are being invaded, but they're not being invaded. It's enhanced. So I wanted to talk about that in the book because I think it's important for girls to realize that they're not alone. You know, that, that like Eden is sort of like, wait a minute, why am I being, qu-? like, she's kind of struggling with it. And then like, she kind of figures out that like, that's not cool. But I think when you don't 
know when you're just sort of, well, maybe I am a fake geek girl. Maybe I don't know anything about the thing that I love more than anything in the world. I think that 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 sort of place where you can see that someone else is struggling with that same thing is like, okay, well, right. (laughs) They're stupid and I am a real geek. And that is, there's no, you know, there's no measure of it. I'm sort of mystified this by this. I think that it's like, at first, you have people who are unhappy about feeling unincluded, which was sort of the experience of being a nerd back in when I was in yeah. school. It was like if you were too excited about something or you were too enthusiastic or you read too many books or you were too into it, then that was an issue. But now that it's cool to feel that way about things, you would think that people would be happy. But instead, it's almost like... um you think about people who are like hazed and then turn around and haze other people. It's sort of the same process that you see like, oh, well, now that you think my group is cool, you want to be a part of it. It's almost like it's this cycle of bullying and shoving in and out of groups. Yeah, I don't really get it. I mean, like, you know, you kind of think about it like punk or something like that, too, right. where it's like, you know, people discover this thing and it's theirs and then it becomes mainstream and then people are like, well, they're your poser like, or whatever. It doesn't mean that punk doesn't still exist. Punk totally still exists just like that thing that you love still 100% exists and is there for you so um yeah more people are excited about it but I guess it's it's sort of this mentality of like is there more for me or is there less for me if more people like it yeah or maybe people feel like they're gonna get left out of the thing that they love you know and that can be certainly scary I mean I get it but at the same time it's like I think they need people who have that fear need to should or what's the gentle way of saying it um perhaps could consider reframing you know their mind in thinking that there's an enhancement the thing that's like really stressful for me is like i love doctor who i've loved doctor who my whole life, you know, it's not my number one fandom, but it's certainly something, I mean, I was watching it, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, I have got my favorite old school doctor and, you know, all of that stuff. And I would say that I'm well-versed in who (laughs) ness in the Whovian lore, but at the same time, it's like, I know that there are other people who know way more about it than I do, but that doesn't make me less of a fan. You know, like the, the, the measure, the only thing that you need to be a fan of anything is, like you said, is enthusiasm. And it doesn't matter. There's always stuff to be discovered about the thing that you love. And that's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's a great, it's a great message for young people reading a book like that. I thought there were a lot of really great things. Maybe we can talk about the way that you translate an idea that you want to discuss into a young adult audience, because a number of the things that I really loved about the book were Eden's kind of inner processing of, is it okay that these boys are acting this way? And the way that the kids responded to maybe somebody whistling or, you know, how it was wearing a costume and that I think it's interesting to think about issues that would be challenging for young people to handle or maybe to address or to stand up for themselves about and then to use something like a book to be a positive influence for that. One thing that I I mean I have not cosplayed in a long time but at my first um, science fiction conventions when I was 
a young girl, I did cosplay. You know, um, yeah, when is Leia? Um, my favorite was uh, Jessica Six from Logan's Run. <laughs> um, I, what I liked about it was that it made me feel like it uh, sort of brought forth a different aspect of my personality that was that was shrouded or that was hidden or that was in shadow or whatever. But it gave me the bravery to sort of bring out this other part of me, you know. And um, and I think that's the great thing about um, cosplay is that you know it sort of it sort of gives you this sort of this some another color of yourself comes out you know and I wanted to talk about that and in the book Eden is going through a pretty tough time and the way that she deals with you know the the sort of um stuff that's going on in her family life is by dressing up as this character Gargantua you know and that that gives her the sort of power and the wherewithal by donning the outfit of this superhero to be able to deal with the crisis that she's going through in her in her own life, you know? And I think that that's really important because the thing that I think is important for teens to know is that you, there are many different tools to get strategies to deal with sort of crises in, in, your, in your life, you know? So that was one thing. The other thing is, is that I didn't want it to be, I mean, I have it, this, it's a fictional team that she loves called Team Tomorrow. And, um, I wasn't sure if it was fictional until partway through. And then I was like, I think she made this whole thing up. That's so amazing. Yeah, I made it up. Uh, my mom, too. My mom, my mom's so cute because I made one of the creators of Team Tomorrow be this woman named Jeanne Bernier. And Jeanne Bernier is the name of my grandmother. Aww. And my mom, my mom read the book and my mom was like, oh, you know, I, I never knew that there was a comic book creator named Jeanne Bernier, just like my mother. And I was like, no, mom, I made it up. I named it after. This is an homage, <laughs> yeah. not not an uncovering. Um, but uh, but what I wanted to do was I, I you know I made it a, a a fake superhero team because the thing is is that if if I made it Wonder Woman or you know any other fandom that that we already have, um, it would either be dated or somebody would read the book and be like, well, I don't like that character, so why would I? I don't like that. So it's better to make up something in order to, you know, in order to be able to sort of let anybody sort of put whatever they want on it. But how do you, my, my, my dilemma was how do you make a reader like a fandom that doesn't exist. And so my idea was that I would have these interstitials that would tell you the sort of history of this comic book um, and why it was important for women, why Gargantua was important for women and wh what its place was, you know, in in the um, canon of iconic superheroes in order for the reader to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I get why she would like this team or why she would like this comic book. Um, so I'm glad that it came off as though it I know were. I was like, wow, she did a lot of research. And then partway through, I was like, maybe she made all of this up, which is, I mean, why wouldn't you make it up? Because that's also really fun to come up with it. I think there was one review that I got and I'd made one mistake. And of course, I got nerdsplained. But like uh, the, the, the review, was like Cecil predates having a, a black uh, superhero on a team um, by like by a year. Like I predated like Black Panther by a year, and I was like, oh. Oh. <laughs> like I got it so almost right. But, oh my you know, god! But then I was by like, whatever. Year. It's like flexible. It's flexible alternate history. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's amazing. I think it's great to see, you know, I think it really worked because it also works in terms of if you're not like a big comic book reader in the sense of you don't know the canon anyway. Right. So somebody who doesn't know the canon, I think I still really enjoyed it. And I am, 
I live with a very active comic book reader and I do read some myself, but there's no way I'm in the most active or I don't have like a working huge vocabulary and it was still totally relevant to me. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, now when we have comic book movies and, um, you know, comic books are so mainstream, science fiction, fantasy, all those things are so, you know, they are the culture now. Everybody knows that stuff. Everybody knows the vocabulary. So you know it just as much as anybody else does because it is mainstream culture. Yeah, I'm just not qualified to nerdsplain. <laughs> no, nobody is. Oh, and yeah. everybody is. That's, <laughs> the, that's the joke. I know. Everybody's, everybody's liable. So I want to talk about a little bit, because there was an article at the time of our recording. This is going to come out when the book comes out, which is only like a couple weeks apart. Yeah. But so I can say this as recent. There's an article in the New York Times about this concept of sensitivity readers. Mm-hmm. And so as we're talking about people being inside of groups and outside of groups, and I'm wondering, from what we talked about briefly before starting to record, it seems like there is an easy way that this concept of sensitivity reading could be sensationalized and potentially scare people off from writing for young adult audiences when your experiences with it have been that it doesn't, it isn't like a censorship experience and it depends on how you interact with it. So I, I wanted people to maybe hear a little bit about your experience so that if they're considering writing for young adults, they don't read an article like that and think, oh my God. Well, I mean, first of all, I, mean, I think it's always a good idea to have people read your book and make sure that you're not messing things up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I wrote a book about outer space and I had a spacewalking scene and I called up NASA and asked them if I could talk to a spacewalking expert. I mean, maybe. Did you just go online and look up NASA and just call <laughs> and say, can I talk to somebody about spacewalking? Because that is amazing. <laughs> no, I have a, a an acquaintance who's a rocket scientist at JPL and I emailed them and I asked them if they knew anybody at NASA and then they introduced me to somebody who wrangled the astronauts and um and then they they helped me um set that up and so that's been really helpful and like um that astronaut Rick Mastracchio and I are friends now and so like sometimes I'll have like a a space an astronaut question and I'll just shoot him an email and ask him like a a basic question or, or whatever and you know Sure, he's not reading, you know, he's not reading it for my, you know, for the sensitivity of walking in space, but, you know, I'm going to the source and asking. I mean, I think the important thing is that any writer, it doesn't just have to be for adolescents, any writer should probably be doing some research and looking around and, you know, and um, I think the thing is, is that people are going to make mistakes and there are certainly things that I've put in some of my previous books that maybe I wouldn't put in now because it's like I've evolved but you know I had a um this was before there was the term sensitivity reader but I had a um character in my second novel the queen of cool who had a chrondoplasia which is dwarfism and I'm an adult of short stature so I'm technically um able to join the little people of America so I joined the little people of America and I um and I went to the meetings and I went and I asked, I said, I would very much like to have a teen who um, has a chrondoplasia who could read my book to give me, make sure that I got it right and that, you know, that things are ringing true and stuff like that. And um, that was just obvious to me. That's just an obvious thing. You know, I'd love to write a Western one day. You know, you can guarantee that if I write a Western, I will be having people, you know, who are indigenous people reading the book as well, because it's like, I can't write about that, you know, like, I don't have that cultural background. And so, 
I would have done that anyways. So I think it's a smart thing to do. I don't think it takes anything away from your book by getting something right or getting something closer to right, you know, uh, in terms of voice and in terms of history, in terms of accuracy and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. The other thing is that, like, no matter what you do when you write a book, someone's mad. Like, sometimes when I get freaked out about writing a book, I'm like, oh my God, who's going to like this book? People are going to hate it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. Someone already hates this book, is so angry about it, and thinks it's the worst thing that's ever been written. So you can't, there's no way that any time that you write a book that you're going to be able to please all of the people all the time. But you can do your, you can do your best to try to get it, you know, as, as close as possible. Um, with Don't Cosplay With My Heart, you know, Kirk Gomez is one of the characters who's, uh, uh, you know, one of the boys in the, in the book. And he's a pretty main character and stuff like that. And I definitely had like, you know, one or two sentences in the book that my editor, who's Latina, was like, you know what? You should take this sentence out. You know, and it didn't change anything, anything from the book. It was just like my, you know, my, like, I was like, oh, gosh, you're right. I should take that out. I was trying to do one thing and it, and it fell flat and it was dumb. And so we took it out, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think it's it's excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that was really long. I'm sorry. No, it was great. I think, I do think that it seems it's easy to sensationalize this kind of thing, like, because, I mean, you look at things that are on the news, and, like, news writing tends to sensationalize things. So I read an article like this, like, oh, my goodness, there was a book that was going to come out, and they got 900 angry reviews on Goodreads, and then the publisher delayed the book. And it's, like, easy to get nervous as a writer, but I think what the point of a book is, is to tell a story well. Oh, yeah, I know what book you're And so, <laughs> yeah, so then... You know, when you see something like that happen, it's easy for people to go into fear and like, oh, that would happen to me. I can't put my book out. But I think that if you're going to write a story about an experience outside of your own, which I think everybody should try to do because it expands your if if you have a character that comes to you that needs to be in the book, I'm not saying force it. But if you if you decide that there's going to be somebody in the book who has a different experience than yours, and that causes you to go out and have new conversations with new people that maybe could give you some pointers and help you with that, then I think that helps everybody. Yeah. And I mean, I also think that like, you know, uh, I think I know what book you're talking about. And this isn't necessarily for that book, but I think there's also this thing where there, um, there are different people who come into young adult literature. Maybe they have a career in adult literature and then they come into young adult literature and they think that they're doing something really great for teenagers or whatever. This has happened for years. And, um, <laughs> And they don't know anything about our world and they don't know anything about our field and they come in and they sort of swing their, you know, their, I am going to make the most important book for children because I am, you know, whatever. So and, and so. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's another problem. Do you know what I mean? Like another problem, like there's, you know, y you have to understand that as a person who writes for young people, most people who write for young people still get asked the question, when are you going to write a real book? You know, oh, I have 18 real books and they happen to be for young people, but that doesn't make it not a real book. And so sometimes, and this happened like 15 years ago after the, you know, Harry Potter came out and everybody was like, oh, I'll just do a land grab and like make a lot of money. You know, adult literary people were coming in and just like, I'm going to write for children now because it's super easy and like, it doesn't matter. And I know what's best. And, you know, and so I think there's a lot of different levels that's happening there. And, and I think there have been a lot of books that have ha that have been 
problematic. And I think that, um, but I think that the, the fundamental thing is that there's no, there's, there's no problem. Nobody is saying, not one person is saying, don't write the book that you want to write. Nobody's saying that. What they're saying is that that's fine. But if you're going to write outside of your lane, do it right and get it right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's the only thing that I think anybody's really saying, you know, and at the same time, too, it's like I think it's really stressful for a lot of um, people of color who are writing, you know, young adult books because, you know, historically publishers will say, well, we already have our book with, uh, you know, a, a person of color um, on our list this season. So we already have that book. And then a lot of the times it's written by a white person. Well, you know, move over. You know, I mean, that just seems very obvious. Move over. Yeah, or make more room. It's just like, what, nobody's going to read books of different experience? I mean, I think that there's always room for more experience yeah. and more stories yeah. and more kids seeing stories that reflect their own Absolutely. experience. From the voices of people who actually have that experience, you know? I mean, I think we just need to bring way more people in, you know, and it starts at the top, right? We have to have like more editors uh, and agents, you know, who are who are not just white ladies. Although I love <laughs> you know, you know, we're not hating on the white yeah. ladies, but but we could make more room. I just yeah. think there needs to be more room. Yeah. I think that's always the answer is like making more room for more stories. Because the other thing that I keep hearing about it is like people are like, oh, you know, it costs money to publish books. So of course they have budgets and all of that. But I also think about for everybody who's writing books, those people are reading more books than they're writing. So every time you make room for more writers, you're making room for readers who are then oh, yeah. reading more books. Like it's just... I just don't think we're going to run out. It just sort of also, it's like the more people that you invite to the table, the better your feast is going to be. So invite yeah. more people over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, have bigger dinner parties. Yeah, because um, I think that it doesn't, you know, it just, it just raises the level, the quality level for everybody. But anyway, that said, I don't think there's any problem with having sensitivity readers. You know, I think, I think it's always a good idea to have beta readers, um, anyways and to ask those questions to ask those questions if you're a writer of your editor like should we get someone to read this like I, you know I don't I don't know about this should we should we discuss this with someone or you know should I go to you know um the library and read some books yes you should you know or should I go to a convention or should I go to a group or should yeah. I call NASA or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I take a lot of, um, you know, I haven't been doing it in the last year, but I like taking these online, you know, massive online college classes. MOOCs, oh, cool. And um, I take a lot of history classes. And I take a lot of history classes because I find that history is a really interesting frame. It's interesting to stir ideas for world building when you're trying to come up with galactic politics for places. And um, it's also very interesting just in general. And then you become more knowledgeable and more sensitive when you're thinking about stuff like, oh, I know why this is important. You know, even if this is not my story, I can get it. Not even just in my own writing, but in reading other people's books where all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I understand the reference here. You know, it's like learn history. Totally. Well, that brings me to something I want to ask, because as somebody who's written 18 real books, as you said, <laughs> of course, coming up with ideas for 18 books, like, are you, you're taking online courses, you're coming up with worlds, all this, because you're not only doing these books, you're also doing comic books. So you have all of this output that's happening. So how are you fueling the input? And where do you find that your ideas are coming from for these stories? I mean, I think a lot of it is like, living you know <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I think, you know, it's like I, I, I like to, um, you know, a friend of mine called me a sensualist the other day Ooh. and I was like, what's that? And they were like, you like to go and see things and taste things. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally do. You're like, other people don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird to me. But yeah. I feel like that is your job as an artist. Your job as an artist is to go and experience things. That's not to say that I don't sometimes spend like three straight days in my pajamas playing video games and doing nothing. I totally do. But, you know, like I'm going to Denmark and I'm going to go see a whole bunch of things and feed my eyeballs and I try to travel and whenever I travel anywhere I try to go to a place and see things you know like a historical thing or a museum or you know I try to I you know I try to take online classes to you know to learn more about things I have interest try to have interesting conversations with people who are way smarter than I am um uh, so that I can, that I can learn. Um, both my parents are scientists. So I try to pay attention to, you know, what's going on, you know, science wise. And I find that, you know, like every single thing that I do like that inspires me to, to no end, whether or not that makes me, you know, write 12 new novels, or if it's just like, I get a bunch of ideas and then I just kind of file them away. But I do have a running list of, um, books that I want to write one day. Oh, really? Yeah. So I have like a whole bunch. I have about 10 now that, um, are books that I haven't gotten to yet that I want to write one day. And so, um, so I just kind of, I just keep, you know, I have a notebook and I write all them all down in my notebook, in the back of the notebook. And then I just try to chip away at them. And then you finish one. You're like, okay, who's next? Right. <laughs> Another one's get slotted in. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think having all of those, like sometimes it's just a little piece. It's like, huh? Somebody tells a story or somebody's in a situation or they say something I'm like, hmm, there might be something to yeah. that. And then just write it down and come back to it. And sometimes it gets stuck onto something else. And yeah. it's like, ooh, wait, yeah, what absolutely. if those things happen at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not one particular thing. Or sometimes there are like ideas that I have that are twinned in a way. I feel like there are three books that I wrote around the same time that was dealing with the same kind of grief and trauma that I was going through and I address them differently. But when I think about those three books, to me, they are all the same book. They're all like, it's, it was like I rewrote the same book three times, but in wildly different ways. So one of them, um, is, uh, this book called the year of the beasts, which is a hybrid novel and it's alternating chapters of prose and graphic novel. And the prose is just, it's the story of two girls in the summer and the boys they like and the carnival and uh, jealousy and fighting, you know, and whatever. And then the graphic novel is a girl who's turned into a Medusa who just wants to be a girl again. And her friends have turned into mythological creatures as well. And she just doesn't understand why she's not a girl. And the books don't seem related. And then at the end of the book, you see how they intersect. So that was one. And then the second book was First Day on Earth, which is about a boy who believes that he's been abducted by aliens. And so he starts going to an alien abduction support group. And when he's there, there's a guy there who's either a crazy homeless person or an alien, and they go on a road trip. And then the third book is Soupy Leaves Home, which is a graphic novel that I wrote about a girl who runs away from home, dresses up as a boy and uh, rides the rails as a hobo in 1932 and meets this sort of magical, and she's completely shut down from trauma and grief and um, and uh, meets this sort of magical hobo who helps her to sort of see the world in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way, like for her to move forward. And 
they're wildly different books, but to me, they were, I have this problem I need to solve. How do I solve it narratively? Or like, you know, like, and to me, they're, they're all, they're all twin, they're triplet books. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, they're twinned in some way, even though they're very, very different. And I think that just happens to us as artists. We get an idea and we write it one way. It's, oh, it doesn't work out. So we write it again. We write it again. Or there's themes that are always interesting. Like, I think you can explore a theme in many different ways, but it could be like, I'm just still interested in this thing. I'm still really interested in these kinds of situations, or I get excited in these kinds of situations. So they just keep coming back around. Yeah. So how are you seeing the difference in kind of why a kind of what you're seeing in the trends in writing for young people since when you started with the book like 15 years ago and seeing it now, like what are some shifts you're seeing in how people are writing for that audience? Well, first of all, there are a lot more people writing um, young adult now than there were when I started. Um, I think it's probably a lot harder to break in nowadays than it was when I was starting out because there wasn't, there weren't really very many people that were doing it. Um, I mean, there were, but there weren't as many as now. I mean, now because it made so much money, because you had things like Twilight and the Hunger Games and um, Harry Potter and um, just all these huge series books uh, that uh, Divergent, you know, um, like it became sort of this huge, huge moneymaker. When I first started writing young adult novels, we didn't have our own section in Barnes & Noble. You know, we were just in juvenile fiction. It was just, it was all in children's literature. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I can say the same thing for comics. You know, I started writing young adult comics um, 11 years ago with my first um, comic book, uh, The Plain Janes, and they wouldn't even shelve it in the young adult section. Now there's like a whole YA comic section, you know. So it's the the, the landscape of the bookstores and the libraries has completely changed. Um, so it makes it, you know, it like the, the marketing category has like, um, has really exploded. But I think it would be probably a lot harder to, you know, break in with like a quiet you know, small book in, you know, young people's literature now, because I think people are looking still for that, that big sort of what's the next franchise, what's the next, you know, big thing. If you look at like a lot of like fantasy, um, I think some of the best fantasies happening in young adult um, literature. And I think a lot of that has to do because fantasy and romance sort of melded. And um, so you have this thing where they did a study a few years ago where um, I think it's something like 65 to 70% of people who read young adult fiction are actually women over 35. So then I feel like it becomes this sort of, well, who who are you really writing for? So that's a very different thing. But that also goes back to the point that it's a real book and that, you know, like young adult fiction is just, it just means that the action is happening to a young protagonist immediately and it's not a nostalgic look back. That's the only difference between an adult book with a young protagonist and a young adult book with a a, a young protagonist. Yeah, this fascinates me. This, cause I, this does come up over and over again with people who come in the show who are in some sort of genre and there's always some sort of reason why the area in which they write, like even within that, like we've had people in on romance who wrote romance in a particular way and other parts of romance were like, well, that's interesting. And it's just fascinating to me how clicky 
writing can get just like any other arena. Yep. It's like, aren't we all sort of like still in middle school in some ways? Yes, emotionally? which is why anybody can write a young adult novel because it's like when people ask me like, how do you, how do you, how do you channel, you know, your, your young adulthood, you know, like, how do you remember? I'm like, have you been alive lately? It's like every single thing is still like, where's the cool kids? Who's the, who's the nerds? Who's like, what, you know, what table do you sit at at lunch? Like what, what's the click, you know? And so, um, so I feel like, yeah, I mean, you don't have to stretch your imagination that far to like feel like you're in high school again because just live your life and it's going to be drama, drama, drama. Yeah, it's amazing to me. It's just like, oh, a real book. It's just so weird to me yeah. because I, I think in many ways, I mean, I haven't been the one who's been getting that particular critique for those particular books, but I think in some ways it's like got to be from people who don't actually write, right? No. Really? No, it's from adult it's from adult authors as well. Interesting. Yeah, because they, like everybody because, knows how hard it is to write any book. Yeah, but I think that there are some adult authors who you know, look, I I have a lot of friends who are adult literary authors and I think a lot of them are really wonderful, but I have had some of them, you know, sort of say to me, "Oh, well, I would never read your books because they're not for me." But why aren't they for you? Mm. They're a perfectly fine book, and you can read them in one sitting, one long bath. Put a yeah. fizzy bomb, fizzy bomb in there, fizzy bath bomb in there, and you're good to go. You know, like, and it, they're good books, you know, but they're not. They just think like, well, it's not for me. Just the same that people do the same thing with comic books. Oh, I don't read comics, right? I don't read comics, so I'm not going to read what you do because I don't read comics. I'm not going to, you know, and it's, I think it's just, it's, it's their shortfall, you know? I mean, there's nothing I can do about it. Like, you know, but then of course they'll read Harry Potter, you know, but that's somehow that's different. Oh, I read the Hunger Games, but I'm not going to read your book because that's a kid's book. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like weird. So yes, it is not just non-writers that do that. Actually, I would say that like uh, any civilian that I sit with <laughs> like next to on the airplane, you know what I mean? They don't care. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I think it's it is it's just fascinating to me because there is this default in some ways of like real books being literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And if you write crime novels or you right. write romance, or Genre, you write thrillers, or you write yeah. sci-fi or anything like that, yeah. it's somehow not a real book, yeah. even though Absolutely. you're far more likely to be able to do that for a living, yeah. you know, if to be a writer yeah. full time at that than in other genres. Well, you know, they lose out. Yeah. I don't lose out because I read it all. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. I mean, yeah. I think the one genre that I don't read very much of is like, you know, straight nonfiction. Uh-huh. You know? Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say. I was thinking of like the one thing I don't read is I don't read really intense horror because it scares me too much. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have read horror. Um, but I'll read like yeah. a light. A li yeah. I'll read like a suspense. Yeah. Some people yeah. would call hardcore suspense horror and yeah. I will read that. But like if it's like the equivalent of those slasher movies, you oh, know, right. where they're like, like, like hostile or, or yeah. saw, I like I can't, yeah. I can't handle yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I can't handle that either. But I, I might read one of those. I would... I would be more likely to read one of those because I'm just a fiction girl. I like right. fiction, you know, um, not that I don't read nonfiction, but it's just, that's not what I, you know, I'm not going to read that book on Hamilton that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda. Right. That's good. Like you have to do, you either have to get it 
on any reader because because or you have to just get really good triceps yeah yeah because it might crush you yeah and i'm glad that he was inspired by that but that's not that's not where that's i just would not have picked that up yeah exactly yeah too dry for me yeah it's interesting because it's like yeah the difference between taste and what people choose to read versus writing off genres that they don't know right and it's interesting because it's like i might not read that kind of book but if a university was offering a massive online college class on, you know, the founding fathers, I would totally sign up for that and, you know, do the 12 week coursework for that, you know? So it's like, you just get it in different ways, I guess, you know? Yeah. it's. I think that's the nice thing about being a writer now is that there's so many more ways to research, get information. People are more you can connect with people so much more easily. Like if you want to talk to somebody in another country about their experience about something that you're researching, like all you have to do is get on the computer. It's, I can't imagine how people really, how long it took to write really heavy research books, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. So (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about, I know we're getting close, but, um, what are you writing next? Oh, well, I'm still working on Shade, the Changing Girl, um, which, uh, you know, has, um, we, you know, just started on the new arc of that. And uh, I am, oh, uh, The Plain Janes, which is that first comic book that I wrote. Um, Me and Jim Rugg, who's the illustrator, we just got the rights back. um, So we're doing a third book in that series. So I'm actually, I was working on that earlier today. Awesome. Yeah, so it's about a girl who um, was in a terrorist attack and um, found a sketchbook that said Art Saves. And um, when her parents move her to the suburbs, um, she decides that she's going to start an all-girl guerrilla art group to make an attack be something beautiful beautiful so she does art attacks instead Mm. in order to deal with her trauma about that and so it was a two book series and um jim and i had always um thought of it as like a you know one more book and so um we're getting a chance to finish that so that's going to be pretty exciting it's going to come out in little brown in 2019 so i'm working on that and then i've got an idea for a new novel that is like really going to be difficult and I mean nobody has bought it yet or anything that's just like an embryonic idea in my brain and so I'm you know I'm gonna try to work on that one that's so cool so would you ever sell one before you had written it at this point or I've done that before you have yeah yeah don't cosplay did that that's awesome yeah just had like a synopsis on what I wanted it to be I would say maybe about maybe a third a third of my books I've sold just on a on a pitch and then sometimes I've, you know, sold it on, you know, the whole thing or. That's amazing. Cause I only have heard about that happening for the most part with nonfiction where you can write like a proposal and have an outline in a couple of chapters, but being able, it's like, cause you had a relationship with the people, right? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you probably couldn't do that never having written a book before. Like, no, I think this will be pretty good. Yeah. Here's some, I mean, here's some thoughts. It's happened different ways, right? I mean, like I've had it where I've sold a two book series you know one was a pitch for what the first book was going to be and the second one was an untitled Cecil Castellucci book so then I had to pitch what that would be to my editor yeah it's it's about half it's yeah it's about half and half I don't know careers are weird you know you just kind (laughs) of you know you sometimes it works out this way sometimes it works out that way I mean I I like it when I just sell it on a pitch because I'm just like, just trust me I'm gonna write a book and it's gonna have words and it's gonna have a story and it's gonna you know work out 
But then it's also, that's a lot of pressure because the potential of what that book could be, you know, in the publisher's eyes is like different than like what is actually on the page. And so sometimes it is actually easier to just be like, well, here's what the book is. Do you want it? We can work on it. It's done. But we can edit it. You know, right. and we, I can revise it, but it's like, you know, the baby's born, you know, like, um, rather than, Oh yeah, I thought it would look a little different. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, they both have their charms and they both have their, their, their problems. Yeah. That's I mean, awesome. it's nice to sell it on a pitch because then it's like, I can get paid while I'm writing it rather than not have any money. I mean, not that I get paid that much, but <laughs> I'm still starving, but, but having it in advance is yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. So that, that way it's like, at least it's like when I'm writing that first draft, I can do it. I mean, I guess the thing that I've learned now is that I can write a book. Like if I, I I'm a hundred percent certain that if I sell you a sentence and I say, this will become a novel, you will get a novel. Nice. It will get done. But yeah, writing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's the summary of the whole, of the whole episode. Writing is still hard. I mean, it is, it is hard, but it is worth it. Totally worth it. I mean, it's the best thing in the world, right? We just get to sit around and make stuff up. And I just want to grow my craft and learn more and get better. You know, it's like I certainly, the nice thing about writing Don't Cosplay With My Heart, which is like nerdy girl front and center who cosplays and whatever. And my first novel being about a nerdy girl who cosplays and goes to school, you know, is that I got to revisit and re- rewrite, reinvent the idea that I had that launched my career, right? Like in a, in a completely new way. And now I'm a more sophisticated writer. So I think it's, you know, I love that first book, but this one is very different. It's It's got more gravitas to it. And if I rewrite something again in 15 years, it'll be different then too. Yeah, and then you can see them all in yeah. a pretty cool box, box set. Box set, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You got to go for the box set. And then I have to ask before we stop, was your main character named after anyone in particular? <laughs> yes. So uh, I don't know if we're allowed to say this. Yes, but I had of course. To ask. Um, actually, uh, so Eden Lepucky uh, is a good friend of mine and yours too. Yeah. yeah. And um, Eden is an amazing writing teacher. You should all like go take her writing classes, works, writing workshops, writing LA. workshops, LA. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, uh, I actually named two different characters after her. In Shade, the Changing Girl, um, there's a sexy panda who is Shade's boyfriend on her planet, Meta, and his name is LaPuck. And that <laughs> was because I was like writing the scene and I was like, I need an alien name. And I looked over at my bookshelf and I saw Eden's name. I was like, LaPuck, that'll work, you know? <laughs> and then um, and then I was trying to come up with a name for, for Eden uh, and, uh, in don't cosplay. And, um, it was the same, I was doing it at the same time. And I was like there and I was like, you know what? Eden's a great name. And I'm just going to go with Eden. And Kupferman was my childhood friends that I used to go spend Christmas and Thanksgiving with. Their last name was Kupferman. And so it worked out. Yeah. No, I know. I was just like, I have a suspicion. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Eden was one of the first guests on the show. Oh my God. She's amazing. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> I, I just thought that was a really funny one. I love Tuckerizing people. Like, I think it's fun. Like I did with my grandma. You know, I'm always putting people's names into my books or, you know, people's last names into the book, into my books. I mean, I think that's kind of fun. 
Yeah, it's like the um, the thing in dictionaries where they have those, oh, what are they called? I'm, of course, going to forget the word now. But there is this phenomenon in dictionaries, and it's a copyright issue. Mount weasels. Mount weasels. Mount weasels, which is the best word ever. But they will make up fake words and definitions and put them at periodic places in dictionaries so that if somebody were to take the whole dictionary, copy it, and publish it as their own dictionary then the original dictionary would be alerted. And the only way you can tell it's not, you know, a real dictionary is to have these mount weasels put periodically in the dictionary, which is one of my favorite things. Um, So I think about these little, like, Easter eggs in people's books as, like, it's like your own personal mount weasel. Yeah. Yeah, it's my own personal mount weasel. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good good bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. I hope everybody... um, even if you don't normally read books for young people, I, I recommend this one. As as Cecil said, it's a good one for a nice bath. Or yeah. I, I highly recommend a fireplace and a cushy chair yeah. as a good reader. Poolside, good work. Yeah, poolside, also good, <laughs> depending on what climate you're in yeah. as you're listening. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.